Welcome, beautiful people, to the first ever episode of the Black Crown Chronicles podcast, where I explore the intersection of professionalism, black hair, and identity. I'm your host, Dr. Kenesha L. Rowe. Today, we're going to be discussing corporate grooming policies, discrimination, and bias that impact Black women, and the often unseen challenges that Black women face due to corporate grooming policies based on decisions that they make around their hair or their texture. Today's special guest is Stephanie Brinkley Esquire. Stephanie is a dear friend of mine, but also a licensed attorney, mother, sora, daughter, and sister in no particular order. Professionally, her law practice Practice has focused on contracts, advertising, and intellectual property matters for clients in industries such as hospitality, entertainment, retail, small business, and financial services. Beyond her work in the legal sector, Stephanie has also served as a higher education administrator and instructor in Central Florida and a public relations account executive for varying South Florida-based entities. Stephanie double majored in public relations and marketing, minored in music business at the University of Miami in beautiful Coral Gables, Florida, She also earned a Juris Doctor degree from Pace University School of Law in White Plains, New York. Stephanie is a proud member of Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated and the University of Miami Alumni Association. I'm excited to have this conversation and I've known Stephanie for almost 20 years and we've both seen each other transform into powerful women transitioning between and across different hairstyles and textures because this is what we do when we go get our hair done. But I don't get yeah. my hair done so I don't get any of those. I'm just in the mirror talking to myself or listening. Oh my gosh. It's such a game changer. And that's also part of the conversation that I wasn't prepared to discuss today, but the connection between you and the people that do your hair or the persons that do your hair, so important, so important to your lock, so important to how you feel in the process. I had to let go of one of my, the loctician who I felt was the best for my hair because of the experience in dealing with her. Not that she lacked professionalism, but I could tell when she, you know, she had an attitude and she, it showed, it showed in her process. It showed in how she dealt with me and a loctician, you're supposed to be the most chill, most loving. I understand you're a person. You come here with your own, you know, things that are going on today. But anyway, it was very disappointing because she was at a really integral part in my locks journey when I wasn't brand, brand new, but I was still like within the first three months of having locked my hair Mm -hmm. and my hair came such a long way in her care. But the attitude was just like, how far am I? Yeah. My spirit and attack you as Guyanese people like to say. So it just, it fell apart. So it's unfortunate, but where I go now, it feels like such a safe haven. Like I feel so safe in that space. Um, every single person in that space. And I think it's because the, um, owner and the proprietor who is in the in the shop every time you go she's very careful about who she hires and who she trains and you know she accepts the notion that what she does is not just physical work it's spiritual work too correct it's so yeah. true. I am very careful about who gets to touch my hair even play in my hair I don't want random hands and it's not just about the bacteria because your hands probably aren't as clean as mine but it's about true. like who are you I don't want to transfer that energy and a lot of my energy lives in my hair a hundred percent 
A hundred percent. And even like, you know, when prior to getting locked, when I was getting my hair relaxed, it's like, don't let everybody touch your hair because your hair will break off. I wonder how much of that was true and how much of it was actually the chemicals. That would cause my hair to break. But even then, it's like you want to try to find one consistent person because they're touching your hair. And are they going to care for it in a way that is allowing it to maximize its potential too? Even, you know, prior to locking my hair. But now, especially now being locked, I'm very in tune with my hair being an uh, uh, extension of me. Mm-hmm. And it being a receptor for energy, just like my eyes and my ears. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, receptive all the same. So was it like that yeah. for your hair being a receptor of you? Was it like that before you locked? No, not at all. And I'm sure it was, but I was not in tune. Uh, yeah. Or I wasn't, I was so concerned about how my hair was being perceived by people on the outside that I wasn't even receiving that my my actual hair is a part of me and has its own vibration and is just as important if not more important than how I am showing to the world so like so prior to locking my hair I as you know was weaver diva and I was very proud to be a weaver diva I never heard that one what I was a weaver diva there was two at one point I was too and nobody knew yeah, it's like there would be months that I wouldn't see my hair. Months. Uh-huh. The notion of that now is like, not only was that sanitary, but also why? It's wild. And, it's wild that, that I didn't know what my texture was until I started growing my locks. Oh, not at all. That wasn't even a question that I concerned myself with. I was more concerned about the texture of the hair that was on the wall when I went to the hair store. Like wet and wavy, yakky. Uh, I I was very concerned about that texture, right? Because that was the style that I was about to demonstrate. But my texture, that was never a question. I don't think I ever even pondered what that was until after I graduated from college, I think, was the first time that... And actually, I had an exchange with someone in college. So I got a natural textured um, ponytail... So what I will. Is that, what is a natural textured ponytail? Describe it. Okay, so it looks like how you would describe an afro, right? So okay. it's not soft. It's not. And when I say not soft, I mean it's not bone straight. It's not, not silky. Uh, correct, not okay. silky. And it was soft, actually. It looked more like you know, just like a a collection of curls, and it had <laughs> two. Uh, what are those like wig clips? And so Uh you would put your hair in an actual ponytail and then you would clip this (laughs) extension. Yeah, you got to secure it. It had a little elastic band and all that, right? Right. (laughs) So I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, this is my first time kind of putting something on my head that's not silky, that's not yakky, that's not down to my butt, right? And I was walking to the elevators on campus at UM And this guy who, you know, was an athlete on campus, well-respected on campus, Black, said, hey, is that your real hair? Because if it is, that's what's up. And I was like, what? Well, yeah, that's my real hair. Lying. Uh, (laughs) How long was it? How long is it? It wasn't long at all. It was very short. It was, was, you know, it, it sat almost like a bun on top of my head. But it was clearly 
designed to emulate a natural hair texture. A cur- now I know it to be a natural, you know, black hair texture. But at the time, it was like, I'm just playing with something new. Uh-huh. Let me see how this goes. And I can remember I had just walked out <laughs> of my apartment on campus. He was one of the first people I saw. And I was like, oh, Lord, let's see how this goes. You know, when you brace <laughs> yourself, yes. right? <laughs> and you're bracing yourself for some negative energy. He was like, is that your real hair? Because if it is, that's what's up. And I was like, oh, okay. So what's your, fa- what's your face do at that moment? I played it off like, hmm, yeah, it's mine. What you, what you saying? But in the back of my mind, it was like, well, what does my natural, what is my natural hair texture? I have no idea. Could I do this with my actual hair? I don't know. I'd never even bothered to try. For as far back as I could remember, was always like, it was a headache. It was a burden. It was money that had to be spent that we didn't necessarily have, or it was your ends are dead or your edges are breaking, or it was always some like critique and of negative what was and, wrong. And, and something yeah. that you have to fix. It's never something that like, wow, my natural hair is not, it's not thriving. So it's all the things that I have to fix. But then when you think about it in hindsight, of course, your natural hair is not thriving because you're constantly covering it up. If you can keep your natural hair braided, not being washed, not being conditioned, not being styled, not being anything for months and months and months and months on end. And by the way, not being exposed to the sun, not being exposed to your natural touch. You're putting plastic on top of it or my God, pump it up and 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 that black gel and all these things that we were putting on our hair thinking that we, you know, we were doing the right thing. Of course, your hair is not going to thrive when these are the things that you're subjecting it to. Right. So, but that I remember was like my first, my first thought about like, huh, I wonder what could my actual hair be capable of? And that, like I said, I was in my, almost in my twenties at that point. Well, that was a good experience. I mean, I it was a it was an interesting yeah it was definitely eye opening because you try something new and it got and you know when you in your twenties and a man is paying attention that makes you immediately like hmm, okay let me let me see what this is about maybe this is something that I could do but of course did that make me you know become natural right away no it was several years of going back and forth and back and forth. My hair was natural and I was, you know, cutting it, cutting off the permed ends, but it was in braids consistently. I remember I would not, I went to a sorority event in between and I was so self-conscious. It was my first time wearing my natural, and I had a TWA at at the time, a little afro. Oh, I was like TWA, teeny weeny afro. A teeny weeny (laughs) afro, yes. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, how could I be at this sorority, you know, this big event with all these people, I have to wear formal dresses and look professional. How am I going to do that with this teeny weeny Afro? Or sores were like, it looks good. What are you talking about? Come on, let's go. (laughs) And I'm like, no, oh my gosh, what headband can I put on? Or what (laughs) can I do to make, what? I was queen of the headband when I first went natural because it it made me feel. That's a consistent thing. When I also transitioned, I was also the headband queen as well. I'm like, I have to, I have to hide the the transition because it's, you know, 
Until I'm yeah, ready it, to show it to the world. Right. Because otherwise it's just my face and then this hair that I don't even know what this is yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So I needed some adornment on my head to like distract or it was really a security blanket. If we're being honest, the headband Ooh, for me. That. Oh man. Security the, he- bl- the, secur- the headband being a security blanket. I feel like that is so true. We don't we don't without making that association at all. But that's what 100%. it is. 100%. Even if you're using it to cover something up, if you're using it to keep something in place, because we all know the sisters is keeping the wig in place with the headband, right? If I mean, I all, use it or, now when I'm like, I need to wash my hair and I'm like, my roots are just crazy. It's very fuzzy. I use it just right. to cover it up right now. So right. it's not always a negative connotation, but it is certainly like a security. Like, let me put this on here and then the back looks fine because it's right. it's already locked. Right, right, right. To your point, yes. I think, and even, you know, even in this space where I am way more comfortable with my hair than I have ever been, there are still moments where I'm like, ooh, can I throw on a headband real quick? I need a retwist. Uh, maybe the headband will, will pull it together, pull together the look. Um, but now it's a choice. Then it was not a choice. It was like, I'm not leaving the house with, I had a headband to go with every outfit. We are going, we're putting every color, every color. <laughs> this is my dressy headband. Yes. This is my casual headband. <laughs> like, and it's real. It, it is real. You are right. If you look back pictures of me, uh, 2005 to 2008, I will have a headband on. I assure you. Um, but yeah, for example, I have a pool. I love going in the pool with my son and he loves going in the pool. And now it's days where I'm like, I'm not going in the pool because my hair, right? I have to, I have to yeah. conserve this hairstyle. And that I don't think there's anything wrong with that until it gets to the place where you are eliminating activities at a like a lot right. because of your hair. I think right. that makes a difference. And that also goes to like things like how you show up for an interview. And I got to get my, you know, I have a, a friend who is headed for an interview tomorrow. Her hair is in red crochet. And she's like, now I got to get this crochet out of my head or I need to dye it or I need to da, 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 da. And, you know, she works in a corporate environment. And I, you know, I said, whatever makes you feel comfortable. That, that's what I said. <laughs> I'm like, if you don't feel comfortable showing up with the big red, you know, crochet mm-hmm. hairstyles, then I get it. But I think what makes us comfortable is in large part because of who is on the receiving end I was gonna say, of that interview. Except yeah, 100%. And we don't do all of those things. We don't. Yeah. Not yet anyway. But I think what I try to do now on this side of it is when I know I'm interviewing people, that's when I let my locks do whatever they want. Because whoever's on the opposite side who's interviewing for the opportunity to come in, I want them to have either one of two reactions. Either they're going to say, oh, wow, okay. I guess this organization is really progressive. I guess they're really accepting. I guess they're really, you know, DEI is not just something on a website. It's real because this girl who represents the organization Mm -hmm. is showing up with her locks in full swing, fuzzy and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're going to be like, and you can almost see it. 
you can almost see the initial reaction of people when, you know, I put camera on on my Zoom and I'm <laughs> interviewing them and the locks are out and the locks are locking. They are doing their thing. <laughs> and the person on the other end, you could almost see sometimes people kind of take, take a step back. Yeah. Right. It doesn't look like the LinkedIn picture that yeah. I took before I locked my hair. Right. When I was still yeah. blowing it out. So now it feels like power to be able to show up as me and I make sure we're not putting locks in a bun when we're interviewing. Nope. When I'm on this side of it, I want you to see them in full, in all their glory. I like how you've shifted that because I could put myself in that same position and be like, oh, I want to give like the best representation. And the best representation at that time may be like, yes, hair's fresh washed. It smells great. Roots are twisted. But I like your spin on it. Like, no, you're going to get me at one point in this spectrum. And yes, it's not going to look like my professional headshot. And you should be okay with that. That shouldn't intimidate you. I like I like what you've done there. And I don't ever, ever, and what a blessing it is to be able to say that now because that definitely has not always been the case. I don't ever feel like people are looking at my hair. I don't ever feel like people are not taking me seriously because of my hair. And how many times have I been in rooms where, and I don't know if that's more a reflection of the organization or a reflection of me. How many times I've been in a room where I'm like, oh my gosh, are they looking at my, <laughs> are they so looking that- at my wig or, you know, but now it's like, I don't feel that at all. So when did that switch for you? When did that shift? Ooh, I think that shifted for me when I felt comfortable enough to lock my hair in a professional role. I think that's when I, because it did take courage and it took time for me to decide based on my professional background as an in-house attorney working for large organizations or in some instances, startups, um, that I felt comfortable enough to even go down this path. I had been saying for years that I wanted to lock my hair. And I kept saying, when I get to a certain status as a lawyer, then I'll be comfortable enough to do it because no one can remove me. from my position. So I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. And I even, you know, my, my parents said the same thing. I think I shared with my dad because one of his sisters has locks. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about locking my hair. And he was like, absolutely not. No, that you shouldn't do it. Wait, wait until you are the boss and then you can do what you want to do. But until then, you know, you really need to be thinking about how you present yourself. So switching gears a little bit, I know you talked about your environment, work environment being very supportive and you feeling Mm -hmm. very comfortable, but that's not the case for a lot of people, men, women, children. Um, And the Crown Act in particular has gotten a lot of attention. For those that don't know, the Crown Act stands for the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. And it's a piece of legislation that's making waves to protect Black hairstyles and textures against discrimination in the workplace, but also at school. So you guys have probably seen headlines about the Crown Act being passed in this state or the Crown Act did not pass in this state. Federally, we do not have that protection. So it is legal to discriminate against someone because of how their hair looks, because of how it naturally grows. Um, But I'm wondering, 
from your background, because this D word discrimination is used, I think it's overly used and sometimes used improperly. Can you tell us what the definition would be in terms of discrimination and what bias would be in terms of black hair and hair texture in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think if I'm trying to draw the line between bias and discrimination, let's start at the heavy end. Discrimination is being kept from, disallowed, disconnected on the basis of something, right? So in the immediate instance, we're talking about hair. It's being removed from your employment because of your hair. It is being kept from a promotion Mm -hmm. because of your hair. Bias is how you are treated while you're standing still. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe I do not have the power or let's let's use a work hypothetical. Maybe your leader does not disallow you from being promoted, but the way they are treating you, the way that they may speak to you, the way that they interact with you is based heavily on an internal precept about you on the basis of your hair. So when you're saying that an organization or a person is discriminating against you on the basis of your hair, the question has to be, where is the harm? What is it that I'm being kept from doing? Or what am I being disallowed or removed from? So we're seeing, for example, a lot of students in schools. Teachers are making comments to students on the basis of their hair. That is a display of bias, right? Mm-hmm. Once the school says to the student, you got to get out of here because your hair is a distraction, they are using policy as a mechanism for removing that student from institution. And I think that's where we have to be careful is the Crown Act is doing great, great work. And it's a bipartisan effort at that, which getting anything bipartisan done in this country right. is whoa. Right. So that goes to show that people on both sides of the aisle are acknowledging that this is an area that needs to be addressed. As you said, on the federal side, it has not yet been successful. It doesn't seem like it's going to be re um, submitted. Uh, and the, yeah, it's not going to be reintroduced on the Senate. Yeah. Anytime soon. I mean, who knows? Um, we're seeing a lot of movement on the state level. We're seeing movement on the local levels, localities that are implementing similar uh, legislative issues or addressing the Crown Act and different variations thereof. But that's where the, the, the line is. It's on the policy and the practice that allows them to take certain actions on the basis of someone's hair. But there will be states that will never, they will never come put pen to page and put legislation in place Rather, it's going to be procedural history. It's going to be precedent, rather, that's going to have to make the difference. Right. Or or a federal law, which I think is why there's been so much attention around this. So currently, there are 23 states that have this protection, 27 Mm -hmm. that do not have this protection. And one of, like, just thinking ahead, (laughs) I don't know how soon or how long it's going to take, but even after we have the protection of the Crown Act, that still doesn't mean that we don't still have bias in our workplaces. 100%. 100%. And even discriminatory practices based on what is written in the policies. And so what you'll find in a lot of organizations is the policy, fortunately, we've come away from the days where policies would expressly say you cannot have braids, locks, 
twist. Uh It wasn't that long ago that companies, even progressive companies, had those words expressly written in their policies. Now what we're seeing in policies is terms like your hair must not be a distraction. Your hair must be professional. Your hair must be um, uh, neat and clean. So these subjective words. 100% subjective. 100%. And so I think in those instances where we start to move the needle is if you are told you are being removed or you must take XYZ action because your hair was unprofessional, the question becomes, okay, organization, please tell me about the last three years. How have you enforced this policy? Who have you enforced this policy against? Because I guarantee you, any organization that is enforcing a policy like that on a uh, grand level, if you look back at the history of that organization, there's a, there's a high likelihood that it's probably people of color who are being impacted most heavily by the policy that your hair must be neat and right. it must be professional, right? So I think that, um, but the work that's being done on the state level is, is fantastic. It could only help. And hopefully it will continue to spread. There's still several states that um, have either not addressed it at all or, it's you know, have had. Yeah. Yeah. It's in it's in progress. So this can seem very daunting, <laughs> but if we are waiting, um, I feel like in terms of civil rights for people of color, for black people, it seems like we are always in a place of waiting to receive something mm. outside of that, like. What are the ways that you have resisted anti-Blackness in a professional setting? Or what are some of the ways that you have been a champion for changing bias in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I think I talked about one example earlier. And I think you right. and and it's so unfair <laughs> because so often we have to carry a banner. It's like, you can't just do your job. You have to do your job and also be an advocate and also, you know, be the Mm -hmm. representative for your organization. And it's a lot. Um, So I recognize even, you know, just the notion of the bravery that it takes to move the needle within your organization can, can be daunting. But I think that's where it starts. It starts with a personal decision to represent yourself in a way that feels authentic to you. And I want to say that because what feels good to me may not feel good to someone else, even if we come from the same place, we're the same age, everything else, right? So it really starts with what feels authentic to you. And remembering that you are in that seat. And if you're in the seat, you're there for a purpose and focusing on the work. Also, keeping a paper trail. Even if it's a comment that was made to you that you're thinking, this made me feel a way, even if it's just documenting it for yourself, I think it serves two purposes. One, it gets it out. You know, sometimes yeah. these things happen and it just festers you within it. us. Yeah. And you yeah. think about it and it, you're, you're, you're worried about this comment. You're replaying how it happened. Am I tripping? Did this really Right, happen? right, right. At, at the very least, write it down. At the very least, write it down. In an email, send it to yourself. You know what I was going to mention? Because sometimes (laughs) when you are fighting the good fight at work and you're already there just trying to exist, creating Mm -hmm. a paper trail can feel like additional labor for just trying to exist. 
Um, but perhaps now in the in, in the era of technology, a paper trail can also be a voice memo recording something. It's dated so, there. You can email it to yourself so that it actually happened on this date, on this time. So I know like from personal experience, when I'm trying to document a series of patterns, the paper trail is just like, well, I'll, I'll just deal with it. And I'll just move to another organization where I don't have to deal with this bias. But that also is not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, that's true. And I think there's also something to be said for knowing the policy. Don't just take it at, you know, at your manager or your leader's word that you are violating a policy. Where's, where is the policy? What does the policy say? What does it say? Right. Does it go into specifics about color? Maybe some policies do like the color of your hair. Mm -hmm. Does it go into specifics about style length? Um, And if it does, are you adhering to that policy? Because chances are you signed something saying that you would, right? Or right. is it just things like it must be neat, it must be clean, it must be professional, in which case, just as they might argue that it's not neat, clean, professional, your position is that it is neat, clean, and professional. It's very hard to, as we pointed out earlier, it's a subjective standard, right? So I agree. I think it can be daunting to feel like you have to keep a paper trail, but A, it's therapy sometimes to get it out, and True. B, in case it's ever called into question, it's documented somewhere. I think that's important. The more we display our authentic selves to the people outside of our organization, the more people like us will be attracted to come in to the organization. And that's why I always say, like, for example, when I interview, when I go out in the community and I tell people, you know, what I do and who I work for, I'm actually doing the company a favor. Because in my mindset, it's like, if you have created an environment where I feel comfortable to show up and do my best work, trust me, you want more Stephanie's in your organization. You want more people that are showing up as their authentic self. And that's not just black women. You want people of every hue who identify as whatever to feel like if she can show up as her authentic self, so can I. When people feel comfortable to be themselves at work, they will do their best work and they are more inclined to stay. That's the thing. Companies that are worried about turnover and yeah, think about how you're making your employees feel. If they feel like they can show up as themselves, then they're more inclined to do good work for you and want to stick around. So I think that that helps as well is you are, you are an advocate for yourself internally, but you're also helping recruit externally to the organization by being your authentic self. But as we think about grooming standards that are either represented or are told to you in either a direct or indirect way, what would you say the conversation is in the professional associations that are preparing you to enter uh, to practice law? Is hair being discussed? Oh, is hair being discussed, I guess? Is black (laughs) hair being discussed? Black hair is being discussed among people who have black hair. In conversations like this, and that's it. I think if the conversations are happening with organizations, as is true with many things, it's happening from a defensive standpoint. How do we avoid litigation? How do we avoid claims? How do we avoid someone coming to HR? And a lot of it is being put on the back of training which is not a bad thing, right? It's 
train your leaders, train your managers, train your supervisors on what they cannot say to people about their hair. If you have a manager supervisor who has a concern, train them that they should not interface with the employee. They should go to HR first, right? Because HR is armed to have the conversation appropriately. And HR is armed to determine whether or not your complaint is a valid one, manager or supervisor, right? So I tip my hat to people in working in HR or people ops or whatever you call it in your organization, because Uh they are really being asked to get educated on the subject and to arm themselves with the information necessary to protect the organization, but also to protect the individual, right? So here's a hypothetical. You have a manager who maybe had very limited access to people. You show up on the scene and you've got, I'm going to say, braids and they're dipped on the ends. Or they're, they're an ombre. Let's, take, let's say they're ombre, right? <laughs> maybe the bias, maybe this leader already feels a way about you based on your color, or where you're from, or your accent, or whatever it is. And these braids really bother her. She is trained to go to HR to say, I have an issue with such and such as braids. HR is then supposed to educate her on why the braids are not a problem. The braids do not violate our policy. The braids are neat. The braids are not a distracting color. The braids, by the way, do not keep her from her ability to do her job. And then their job is to send your manager right back to you to deal with you. I'm, now, I'm here's shaking, the problem. I'm shaking my head here. <laughs> yeah, I see, and I get it. Now, here's the problem. Has HR done anything to correct the behavior, the action, the bias of right. the leader? No. What HR has done is told the leader, you need to go back and deal with that person in a way that is professional, that keeps us making the cogs, opening the door every day, and making the money. You don't have anything here that we can punish this employee for but the employee the leader still has the bias right so that's where we get back to that paper trail that's where we get back to documenting that's where we get back to if you feel like a line is being crossed you should address it as soon as possible whether you uh, feel comfortable addressing it with your leader or your um my opinion not giving leaders adequate training on this subject because it's too deep. It's too deep of a subject to, t- you know, we need to have bias training. I, I don't, I don't know if they could even reasonably do that for all of the people who hold leadership positions in these organizations. And, I don't know. And do it for all of the biases that an individual may hold. Like there could be millions Correct. of them. So that Correct. brings me back to like, yes, the, yes, the crown act is important to have, right. To say that mm-hmm. you are not going to discriminate based on a written policy, but it really goes back to the practice and an individual holding certain bias because that creates this hostile work environment or an environment where you feel like my values are not in line with how my managers treat me as a person. So maybe 
I am not supposed to be uh, a professional in this area. Maybe I don't fit into this work in this particular state because none of this makes me feel comfortable. That's why I like to stress so much so much about the in, the work happening on the individual level as much as it happens on the organizational level. Why? Because the people run the organization, the people write what the values are for the organization. So many of these organizations, I wonder if they're really doing the real work to vision and mission and and come up with the values of their organization, or are they just copy pasting based on something that a consultant told them makes them look good on their website, right? So that's the other thing is at the core of this, and you're 100% right, it's the individuals that are being taught, that should be held responsible for getting themselves to the level where they can ensure that they and the people that report to them are performing on a high level. And a lot of those organizations made those decisions to not be on the wrong side of history, right? We're, We're good people or we're a good organization. We're not one of those. But imagine a world or even a country where if we do have the Crown Act as a protection, we're not coming after an organization, but we're talking about the organization's policy doesn't discriminate, but your bias is is problematic. Now, how do we hold you as an individual responsible for the impact that it has on this person's generational wealth or their promotion or their education? I think that's probably a more interesting conversation, but that's where the real needle starts to shift. It's not just, okay, we're going to sue this corporation to get this money. They're going to change their policy. You can change your policy all you want. You could rewrite your policy but the people still working there still have the same bias and biases start to shift with times. Words are going to be replaced, you know? So that's true. more of a, a conversation that I would like to hear more about. Stephanie, do you have any last words for our listeners? And for people who have been on the fence about making one decision or another in regards to your hair, like what a great time to just lean into what you've been feeling. Don't right. wait 10 years like I did. <laughs> right. Just go, go for it. You might be so pleased with what you feel like on the other side of that decision of what to do with your hair. And you will also be surprised at how important it actually is and how freeing it can be to embrace who you really are.